Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. We were listening, we were listening back there, and I told Stephen, I said, I'm not sure who's leading the music right now. <laughs> I, I can't even hear Blake, so, which is kind of cool. <laughs> When my papa retired, sold his home insulation and fence company, he bought 160 acres out by Pottsboro, Texas. And uh, they called it the Rancho Grande. The cool thing about Papa's ranch was um, it had a spring-fed tank. In Texas, they call a pond a tank. Spring-fed tank. And uh, this piece of property was just south of Hagerman Wildlife Refuge, so it was a flyway for mallards and and uh, Canadians. And so we would go out there and hunt mallards on this pond. And so uh, the, the interesting thing about the property, though, was that it was about a half a mile off of the nearest uh, asphalt road. And it was, I can't really call it a gravel road because I don't really remember any gravel on it. Kind of a, a dirt, muddy, red dirt, North Texas road that ran a little bit down and then flattened out onto the property. And over time, uh, because it ran a little bit downhill, as, as Papa and other guys with the trucks would come feed the cattle and stuff, they'd kind of leave deep ruts in this when it would rain, and then the rain would wash it out further. And so at, at times it could be kind of difficult to get down. And I, at that time, had a 1974 Vega GT, which is, I think, the worst car ever made. Seriously. I think it, it's between the Vega and the Gremlin. And so... I've got a Vega, I don't have a truck, and I'm going down this road. My buddy and I were going to go hunting the next morning, so I was going to go put out decoys that evening on this pond, and then we'd go hunting the next morning. And I'm driving down this road in my Vega GT with my decoys in the back, and 16 years old, totally unprepared for what's about to happen. I don't realize it, but the ruts are getting deeper as you go down this road. And then eventually, about two-thirds of the way down, a high center. You know what I mean when I say high center? That means the wheels are too deep in the ruts and the the road, the top of the road is now flush to the bottom of the car. And when you get high centered, you're stuck. I'm not talking about a little stuck. I'm talking about completely, irreparably, irretrievably stuck. I tried to push the car back. I couldn't do it. I tried to push the car forward. Couldn't do that. And I'm like, how am I going to get out of this? This is like uh, 1976, okay? Um, there aren't any cell phones. Nobody knows I'm out there. And I'm not really in Pottsboro, Texas. I'm in the suburbs of Pottsboro, Texas. The nearest house is about two or three miles. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do now? Now, it just so happened that in those days, they had a thing called a bumper jack on a car. Do you all remember bumper jacks? You basically, it was a jack that fit on the bumper, not one of those ones that go under the car, but on the bumper. And cars tended to fall off a of bumper jack, so they quit making them. But fortunately for me, my Vega had a bumper jack. So what I did was I took the bumper jack, put it on the front of the bumper, jacked the car up enough to get off a high center, and then I put my back to it and I pushed it, and the car fell off the jack about two feet up the hill. And then I got, a, got the bumper jack, did it again, did it again, did it again. It took about two or three hours, and I finally jacked that car back up the hill by pushing it two feet at a time. And I learned something very important that day. Here's what it is. It's better not to be stuck 
than to be stuck. (laughs) And once you get stuck, it's really, really hard to get unstuck. And what I've come to realize as I've walked through life is that there are many times that we get stuck. We get stuck in a variety of ways through a variety of experiences. Some people get stuck in their, with bad health. Um, you know, they plan for a different retirement. They plan for a different experience, and here comes bad health, and they get stuck by that. Some people get stuck by loss. I was talking to a lady between the services who had lost a teenage daughter. And she said, you know, it becomes very difficult to move forward because you, if you feel as if I move forward, I'm going to leave the person that I've lost in the past. And yet it's, it's so important for us to keep moving because if we stay where we are, we'll never get out of it. Some people get lost with bad finance, get stuck with bad financial decisions and they just get stuck in that. Some people feel like they're stuck in a bad marriage or a bad relationship and you don't really know how to deal with it, how to process it, how to make it better, how to, how to, what to do about it. We get, we get stuck spiritually, um, and we don't know where, where to go with that. And, and all of that can kind of coalesce into depression and despair and anxiety and all the things that go along with it, because that's what happens when we feel stuck. And I'll tell you, God doesn't want us to stay stuck. But there are times in our lives where we do get stuck, and God can use that in powerful and profound ways. Um, Because here's the thing I want you to hear. You can get stuck even when you're faithfully following God. You know, we've been talking about following God. We started with everybody needs a dream. Without a dream, you drift, right? And you're going to tend to drift if you don't have a vision and purpose for your life. And then I talked about how you need to have a big dream to attach yourself to. You need to invest yourself in things that are eternal that aren't going to rust and rot and die with, with, with you, but things that are going to last beyond you. And so God wants us to have big dreams. But if we're going to see the dream become a reality, we have to sweat the dream. We talked about that last time. You can't just dream it. you got to do it. Well, this morning I want to talk about getting stuck. Our model is going to be Joseph. So let's take our Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 37. Here's the thing I realized. Every great person that I see in the Bible at some point got stuck. Abraham was stuck because he couldn't have children. Moses got stuck in the Midian wilderness. Um, Jacob got stuck with a corrupted uncle Laban. David was stuck in caves. Paul was stuck in prison. And it seems to me that this becomes a pattern of how God deals with His people, that sometimes He allows us to get stuck Because in that experience, He does things in our lives that can't be done any other way. So before we uh, open up on Joseph, let me say this. Why do we get stuck? And I I can really think that there's two broad categories here. One is sometimes we get stuck because it's our own fault. Because we demand going our own way. That we want to live our own life. And so we set out and we say, God, I I don't really care about you. I don't really even fully believe in you. I'm just going to do what I do. And that always leads us into a cul-de-sac because the Bible says there's a way that seems right to men, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And so oftentimes you, you end up in a dying situation because you're stuck, because it's your fault. And you know, God allows that. The Father loves us and He always allows us to have access and intimacy. That's the beauty of God. He loves us like a father. And I always feel bad for people who don't have a, didn't have a great father, who didn't have a loving father, so they don't have a great model of who God is. 
but they know in their heart who God is because their heart desires Him. And God has put that built-in desire for a loving Father in you. And so what I would say is, don't model God the Father off of your father. If you had a father that was abusive or neglectful or distant or disinterested, whatever, don't let him be your model of the Father because God loves us. He loves you exactly as you are. But there's a second side to God, and that is the Father sometimes disciplines us. Um, And this is the side we seldom hear about. God loves us, but He loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And so when we do things that are going to wreck our lives, God will discipline us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He punishes everyone He accepts as His child. Now, discipline is a good thing, but it's not a pleasant thing. Who likes to be disciplined? My kids never like to be disciplined. They never came to me and said, Hey, Dad, discipline me some more. You know? (laughs) Who likes to be disciplined? Scripture says this, No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. The beauty of God's discipline is it's perfectly placed, and the punishment always fits the crime. That's the part that's so powerful and special to me, that whatever we do and the discipline that God brings, it's always perfectly fitting. Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Whatever you get, whatever mess you get yourself into, God lets that discipline be fitting for that mess. Amy used to have this rooster we named Chanticleer. He was a big Rhode Island red rooster. He was about, he was about this big. And Chanticleer had a bad attitude. Chanticleer, every time you would walk past him, he would, uh, he would kind of bow up and come at you like this. This is how a rooster come at you. It's like, I'm coming at you, babe. You know, and you turn around. And here he comes, and he had these big old long spurs. He would try to jump up on you and spur you. One time I'd be, I was mowing the yard with the tractor one time, and I looked up, and he's standing in front of the tractor. And he's like, bring it, bring it. He was, he was such an idiot. I mean, the dog hated him. And so the rooster would bow up and jump on the dog, our border collie. When the dog would turn his back on the rooster, he'd jump on the dog, and the dog would turn around and just beat the ever-loving soup out of that rooster. Get him down, feathers flying, got his teeth on the rooster's neck. The rooster's powerless. He's like, and I'm going, don't kill the rooster, don't kill the rooster. Let him up, let him up. The dog would kind of look at me and go, okay. And he'd walk off. And as soon as the dog would turn his back, the rooster would go and jump on him again. I'm like, one time my brother-in-law was over at the house and he walks right next to where the, the chicken coop was in the chicken run and it had chicken wire on it. And Chanticleer bowed up on him, went running over, and jumped up and tried to spur him. But when he did, he hit the chicken wire, and both of his long spurs got caught in the chicken wire, and now he's hanging upside down powerless. And my brother-in-law looks at him and walks over and says, what you going to do now? And the rooster's just hanging there. And my brother-in-law says, I think I'm going to let you hang there for a while and think about your life. And I thought about that, and I thought, that's how the Father is with us. And so sometimes when we go our own way, and we insist on our way, and we, in our rebellious heart, determine to do only what we want to do, God says, I think I'm going to let you hang in your own mess for a while. And you're stuck. That's on you. And so sometimes God allows us to stay stuck to learn, but sometimes God allows us to get stuck to grow. 
And this is the hard part to understand. Sometimes getting stuck is not our fault, but it's God's will. Genesis 37, Joseph's stuckness was not his fault. Here's what happened. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. His father loved him, gave him a multicolored coat. And then Joseph was foolish. Joseph got a dream that he was going to be over his family. So who does he tell? He tells his jealous brothers. So they've had about a belly full of him. So Joseph one day is walking along and they throw him into a pit and sell him as a slave. So the first thing that happens to Joseph is he gets stuck. First he got stuck. Genesis 37, 28. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brother pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver, and the traders took him to Egypt. And then Joseph wound up in the house of a man named Potiphar, uh, Genesis 37, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. You know, this is the kind of thing that shatters the prosperity gospel. Because the, the prosperity gospel says, and there's a lot of guys preaching it these days. You know, it's interesting to me how the image of a pastor teacher has changed. You look at these guys now and their Instagram picture perfect. You know, are these guys life coaches? Are they personal trainers? Are they pastors? I don't know. They're super fit, which is very offensive to me. But it's almost as if the image has become more important than the content. And the idea is that when you come to Jesus, your whole life's going to get easier and everything's going to get better and you're going to wear better clothes and drive better cars and have a better looking wife and live in a better looking house and have a better husband and all that stuff. And then you read this and you go, wait a minute, here's a man that God is about to use greatly and the first thing he does is he lets him get stuck. And think of the betrayal. Think of how Joseph must have felt. He's dealing with his brothers doing this to him. I mean, I had two brothers. I can't imagine getting over this if my brothers did this to me. And when you're sold into slavery, as far as you know, you're always going to be a slave. So he's stuck. And every day, you know, he's crying out to God, God, unstick me. God, get me out of this. And what happens? He got more stuck. Potiphar had a wife who had a a lustful attitude and saw Joseph and tried to seduce Joseph and he did the right thing and ran from her and she lied and told everybody that he tried to rape her and they throw him in prison. So the next thing you know, he's in prison and he would spend, you ready? The next 13 years of his life in prison. He was 17 when he went into prison. He was 30 when he came out. 13 years of his life in prison for something he didn't do. How are you feeling about God when that happens? You see, in the process, He modeled our reaction to being stuck. So what do you do when you get stuck? Let's do this. Obviously, the first thing is this. Ask myself, am I really stuck? You see, a lot of times when we think we're stuck, we only feel stuck. And there are opportunities that are available to us that we have to be willing to take. And you're like, I'm stuck, I'm stuck, I can't get out. And God's saying, well, if you'll do this, you can get out. But I don't want to do that. I want to do what I've been doing, even though I'm stuck. I don't want to change. And, and so you're not really stuck. There's a way out. The second thing is ask yourself, why am I stuck? Did I do this? Is this on me? Or did God do this? Did God allow this? Did I make some terrible choice that has put me in this cul-de-sac 
has put me in this trap, has put me in this confinement. You see, here's the thing. If you stuck yourself through your rebellious heart, through your disbelief, through your love of sin, if you're stuck in that mess, that's on you. And you've got to learn and you've got to turn. That's the key. If you stuck yourself, you got to learn it. you got to say, hey, why am I here? This is on me. I own this, and I've got to turn. That's what the word repentance means. Repent means to turn around, metanoia, to change your mind. I'm going this way, now I'm going this way. And God calls us to that repentance because we've come to a point of realizing that we are powerless over our life and powerless over our sin. That's on you. But if God lets you get stuck because He's trying to do something in your life, then you trust and grow from it. That's the key, trust and grow. You know, God is refining us. And this is what I want to say. God is far more concerned with your character than your comfort. And He will often sacrifice your comfort to achieve character. Uh, Psalmist said this in 66 verse 10, For you have tried us, O God, you have refined us as silver is refined. And so you ask yourself, why am I stuck? And then you determine not to get bitter. Don't get bitter. When I look at the model of Joseph, the one thing that is conspicuous, conspicuously lacking is any bitterness or complaining. And if anyone had the right to be bitter, it was Joseph. I mean, he, he didn't sell himself as a slave. His brothers did that. And so here's what happened. He gets stuck... He prays, God, get me unstuck. He gets stuck even more. He gets accused of of attempted rape and thrown into prison. And so now he's in prison for 11 years, waiting, waiting. He's praying, God, get me out of this situation. And what happens? He gets stuck even longer. There's this palace intrigue. Pharaoh gets sick. Somebody's tried to poison the Pharaoh. He ate a bad cupcake. There's only two possible people that could have done it the baker, and the cupbearer. He's got a guy that's supposed to taste everything before he eats it. The cupbearer didn't get sick, so maybe he let him poison something, get to the pharaoh. The baker must have made the cupcake, so it's one of those two. He throws them both in prison. They land in front of Joseph. They have dreams. Joseph interprets their dream. He said, good news to the cupbearer. You'll be acquitted of all charges, and you're about to get out and be restored. The baker's like, ooh, 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 do my dream. He's like, okay, bad news, dude. You got three days to live. (laughs) And when the cupbearer was about to be released, Joseph went and talked to him. He said, look, man, remember me. When God restores you, remember me. Remember me. And, And tell Pharaoh, I've been falsely accused. I'm an innocent man. Put in a good word for me. I mean, for the first time in 11 years, there's a sliver of hope, the slightest hope. But watch what happens. Genesis 4, verse 23. Pharaoh's cupbearer, however, underline this part, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Man. Now watch this. Genesis 41, verse 1. Two full years later. Two full years. In retrospect, two years is not much. But when you're going through two years, two years is an eternity because you don't know if your sentence is a five-year sentence, a 10-year sentence, or a life sentence. And two years is a lifetime. 
And, and what makes it so much harder and so much more difficult not to be bitter and bitter at the cupbearer, bitter at God, bitter at everybody, is that hope deferred. He had that sliver of hope. And the Bible says this in Proverbs, hope deferred makes the heart sick. So when we have that hope, and that hope is crushed, it becomes even more important. But you know what? Joseph never mentions it. He never says. When he's restored and finally comes out, see, two years later, the cupbearer, the, the Pharaoh has a dream. The cupbearer goes, oh yeah, there's this guy named Joseph. He interpreted my dream. He might be able to interpret yours. They're like, go get him. Joseph comes out and he does it accurately. Two years later, he's restored, but he doesn't show any bit, not even a whiff of resentment to the cupbearer for forgetting about him. Fast forward to the end of this story of his life. Joseph was used by God to maintain the economy of Egypt and by virtue of that, the economy of the whole Fertile Crescent. His family that was affected by a famine came to Egypt where Joseph had stored up in good years for, for these difficult times. His family was blessed and prospered from that. He reconciled with his brothers, got to see his dad again, got to see his little brother. It was this glorious thing. But now dad's dead, and the brothers are convinced that after dad dies, Joseph's going to take his vengeance because they have to assume that Joseph had the same bitter heart that they had. And so they go to Joseph on their knees and they say, Joseph, is this the time with dad gone? Are you going to take vengeance on us? Watch his reaction because it's powerful. Genesis 50 verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Now don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. And you read those words and, and you live those words and you let those words be more than words on a page and you slide into his sandals and the feelings that he must have felt. And it's unstinking believable that he wasn't bitter because bitter is the easiest thing to do. And let me tell you, when you allow bitter to come in, you destroy what God wants to do. The Bible calls bitterness a root. Listen to this, uh, Hebrews 12, 15. Look after each other so that none of you fall, fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out. Now watch this. That no poison root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Bitterness is a poison root. And you can easily allow it to grow in your life. And you look around at what other people are doing, especially when you're stuck, and the people who are responsible for causing your pain, and you can put all your focus and energy on them, and you can allow that bitterness to poison your life. You know the thing about bitterness is, it's a poison you make that you drink yourself. Some guy said that bitterness is like a blade that we wield by the sword, that we're the ones damaged by it. And it's not only us, it's everybody in your house. I love what that one girl said being baptized. She said, my family got a new mom and my husband got a new wife. The healing that comes from that. When we say, God, I'm not going to be bitter because what happens, I'm stuck. I get on social media. I look at everything everybody else is doing and everybody's got a perfect world. There are filters that they use. <laughs> That perfect world lasted one, 
125th of a second of a shutter speed. And then it was chaos again. But they froze it forever for you to look at, to become envious and bitter and comparative to. It's overwhelming. It makes you feel ugly and unloved and forgotten and overlooked. And those feelings affect everyone around you. Don't get bitter. Get better. That's what Joseph did. Become the best version of you. Here's the thing I want you to realize. Joseph turned every disappointment into an opportunity. That's where we need to be. Turn disappointments into opportunities. And look, I'm not talking about some self-help thing. I'm not talking about some Dave Delgado, be your best you kind of idea or, you know, win friends and influence people or the power of positive thinking and all that. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about the fact that God, for whatever reason, in His sovereign wisdom, has allowed you to be in a position that you don't want to be in and you feel stuck. In that moment, you you throw yourself on the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you yield yourself to the sovereignty of an Almighty God and you allow the Spirit of God to take control over your attitudes and your reactions so that you begin to have the mind of Christ and you respond in the way of Christ just like Joseph did. He showed us the way. He gave us the blueprint. He turned every disappointment into an opportunity. When they made him a slave, he ran the house. Look at 39 verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph and he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. Verse 4, this pleased Potiphar, so he made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of the entire household and everything he owned. When they threw him in prison, he took over the joint. Look at 39.21, for the Lord was with Joseph in prison. Read that again. I always want to underline that. For the Lord was with Joseph in prison. I'm like, wait a second. If you're with Joseph, what's he doing in prison? It should say the Lord was with Joseph and got him out of prison. It doesn't say that because sometimes God gets us out of our trouble and most of the time he walks us through our trouble. And he's with us even when we're stuck. Look, it said, and he showed him his faithful love and the Lord made Joseph a favorite in the prison with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners over everything that happened in the prison. Here's the thing. You can't control your circumstances. You can't always change your circumstances, but you can change you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can change you. So become the best version of you. Yield yourself to the Lordship of Christ. Stop focusing on other people and trust the Father. This is the key to all of it. Notice those lines we just read, Genesis 39.2, the Lord was with Joseph. 39.21, the Lord was with Joseph. Being stuck is not the same as being abandoned. Sometimes when you're stuck, you feel abandoned. It's not the same. God's with you. And the Father knows what you don't know. And the Father sees what you can't see. And in that moment that you can't see, you can only trust. Your question is, do I trust? Do I not trust? Because faith is trusting when you can't see. Isn't that what Hebrews says? 
and 11 verse 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. Here's the thing I realized. None of what happened to Joseph made sense in the moment. When he was confined and sold into slavery, when he was put into prison, none of that made sense. It all made sense at the end when he was able to look back and say, oh, I see now what God was doing the whole time. That's what faith is. Faith is believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. And so in that moment, when it doesn't make sense, and when my life is filled with pain and hurt, I choose to trust. And I trust my Father that He knows what I don't know and He sees what I can't see. So can I ask you, do you feel stuck? You stuck today? Why are you stuck? That's the question. Why are you stuck? If you stuck yourself, then learn and turn. Listen to this, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins and restore their land. That's what God's waiting for. If my people, called by my name, humble themselves, take ownership, pray, seek my face, and turn. You may be at the end of your rope right now, and you're stuck. You've lived your life as if God didn't exist, and now God's Holy Spirit is opening the reality. You don't have to stay stuck. In just a minute, Blake's going to come up and we're going to sing a song. And we do this during the retreat time. We've got this bell, and the bell is just a symbol to sound to everybody else, I'm ready. I'm ready to make a decision. I'm ready to get unstuck. You want to get unstuck? Well, if the stuck was your doing, the moment you receive Christ by faith, everything starts to change. And God can make you new, but you've got to respond to Him by faith. In just a minute, we're going to give you that opportunity, and you can come and ring the bell. You've said, well, I'm not a bell ringer. You don't have to ring a bell to get saved. But you need to talk to somebody. You need to be sure. So we've got guys that are going to be at the Belong Center back here and the Belong Center over here, and they will spend as much time as you need to talk to you about where you are. Because... At, at the end of the day, we don't want you to stay stuck. Now, some of you are stuck because God's doing a work in your life and you've got to trust and grow. And He's teaching you things and He's refining you. And you're going through some hard things and you're struggling. Bitterness, envy, despair, resentment. And you may just need to lay those at the feet of Jesus. You may just want to come forward and just pray if you want to do that. Or you may want to come over here to a belong center on either side and, and our guys are there to pray for you. But you need to realize being stuck is not the same as being abandoned. That God is with you, whatever you're going through right now, and He has a purpose and you got to trust Him. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing and as we sing, you respond. Father, 
thank you for this time that we have, for your beautiful word and for the life of Joseph, a man that went through so much but had such a large life and such a, such a, a, a large footprint that he left for us a model of what to do when we get stuck. There are brothers and sisters who are stuck today. And they don't understand why things have been hard. But God, you're working in their life. Help them, Father, not to grow bitter, but to get better. Father, some are here because they've made some choices and gone their own way and they're stuck in, in the mess that they created and stuck in sin, stuck in lostness, and they want to get unstuck. Give them the courage today to, to allow you to set them free. And we'll glorify you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.